Today's scripture reading is from Philippians 4, 4 through 20. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length You have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him, who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I began my message last week saying that Jesus is our great high priest, and if you believe in him, you also are a great high priest, or rather not a great high priest, but you also are a priest, which means if you don't know what the Bible teaches about priests, you will not know who Jesus is, and you will not know what you have been called to be. And so that is why we are going through Exodus, which begins with God's people in slavery, and through God's power, they are set free so that they can worship Him. And we are seeing now what that worship looks like and why God instituted a priesthood. God told His people to build a tabernacle, a sacred tent, where His glory would dwell so that He literally lived among them. And he called a family and a tribe to serve as priests for the whole nation. These things might not seem very important for Christians who worship Jesus without needing a special place or without needing special priests to approach God. But these passages form the foundation for Christian worship. 
And unless we learn from Exodus, I believe we will not understand what the New Testament teaches us about what God has done for us in Christ and what he is doing in us and through us. So this morning, as we go through Exodus chapter 30, and I would encourage you to turn there with me this morning, I want to say something at every portion of Scripture about what it means for believers in Jesus and specifically how we worship and what worship is. When I use the word worship, if we're being honest, there are two types of reactions. Some people love worship. Others feel somewhat strange and uncomfortable. They fear boredom and sleepiness. And I remember there was a time period coming up on close to 20 years ago now when all of my favorite Christian musicians started putting out what they called worship albums because apparently what they had done prior to that was not worship and they felt a special call for every single musical artist in all of Christendom to record the exact same song. And I will be honest, I was one of those who was sad and somewhat grumpy and confused at what was happening to Christian music. Not because I didn't love worship, but because it seemed that we were all very confused about what worship actually was. And my prayer for this message is that people who love worship and people who are uncomfortable with worship would both be drawn to the scriptures so that we all can learn what God describes worship as. All of us, no matter who you are and how well you know the Lord, all of us have some wrong ideas about worship. And we regularly need to learn more about what the Bible says so that even those of us who maybe know a lot can ask ourselves, if we are living up to what God has called us to be and how he has called us to worship. So to begin with, worship always starts with a big view of God. We don't come as worshipers offering him things because he needs us and he needs our things. We come because he is so incredible and we want to acknowledge that and we want to enjoy his presence. You can see that in Exodus in two fantastic ways. His miraculous salvation shows incredible power. You can think of the dramatic moment when the Red Sea split and the entire nation walked through on dry ground. In fact, in Exodus, the very next thing the people of God do is they worship in song as an entire nation celebrating God's awesome deliverance. So there's a very big God in the Exodus. Then they see God, they see God's glory on Mount Sinai as God gives them the law and they begin to learn about his character, his moral purity. And so as the priesthood is instituted, it comes from a context where they know how awesome and huge God is. And our worship has to be motivated by the same vision. That's really in large part why we are in Exodus. My prayer is that we would have a huge vision for the glory of God that he reveals in this book. And all of worship starts with that vision. If you have ever experienced 
the forgiveness of sins, worship should never stop coming from your forgiven heart. And the more you know God, the more you know the miracle of how he worked your redemption, that Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead, pause and think of the miracle of the resurrection that your salvation was accomplished not only in the death of the Son of God, which is unthinkable, but that God brought someone who was dead back to life. Your salvation was accomplished by something far greater than splitting the Red Sea. And the power of God that's displayed in the cross and in the resurrection is more full of glory than Mount Sinai was where God gave the law. We recognize that in God's awesome holiness, he doesn't fudge the rules for his favorites. His beloved son died because of his passion for righteousness and justice. And in his mercy, he made it possible for sinners like me and sinners like you to come into his presence. And so his awesome power has already been displayed for you if you know the gospel. And the more you know about God, beginning with that salvation, the more you know, the more you will want to worship him. So the question is not, do we worship? The question becomes, how do we worship and what should our worship look like? And this morning, we're going to see worship in a few places, beginning with the altar of incense, the beginning of chapter 30. We're going to talk about what that is and how the Israelites worshiped with it. We're going to talk briefly about worship through giving. We're going to talk about worship through washing. And we're going to talk about worship through anointing. And each of these, I believe, will help us understand what it means to worship God. So begin with me learning about the altar of incense in Exodus chapter 30. And I just want to look at verses 6 through 10. Notice with me what they were to do with this small altar. God says, And you shall put this altar in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord." This is a small altar. It's about 18 inches by 18 inches and about three feet high, placed within the tabernacle in front of, but not inside, the Holy of Holies. And incense is to be burned on it. That incense is described as the very last thing in this chapter. It is is 
a blend of sweet spices, some of which, if you've ever read the Old Testament and struggled to pronounce a few words, sometimes that's because we honestly don't know exactly what that spice or that jewel or that type of wood was. One of the most difficult things in translations is recognizing a modern correspondent to something that is described in ancient times, and unless it's something as common as salt we may not know exactly what it was. So in reading about the incense, it would be impossible to recreate this. And in fact, I don't believe that we should or that we would ever need to. The important thing about it is that this incense was burned as a regular and continual act of worship. And I think the most natural thing to ask is why? Why is incense part of worship in God's tabernacle? What does burning something sweet have to do with coming near to God? Well, first, notice, if you paid attention as we read those verses, this altar that incense is offered on needs to be atoned for. You cannot come to God and burn incense unless the altar is first atoned with the blood of the sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. So they are not burning incense to gain God's favor. In fact, they cannot burn incense unless they have made sacrifices to atone for their sins. Every year, blood from the sin offering had to be placed on the altar. And this means that there was nothing about burning incense that gained favor with God. Only through the sacrifices that God prescribed could sin be atoned for. So if the priest was not making peace with God as he burned incense, what was he doing? Well, this altar, remember, is placed right in front of where the glory of God would dwell in the temple. You remember the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim, and throughout the Old Testament, God is described as enthroned above the cherubim. This is a, this is a reminder of God's heavenly throne room, and they are burning incense in front of the throne room. All throughout the Bible, prayer is associated very closely with incense. I'll mention one verse. Psalm 141 says this, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. In the beginning of Luke's gospel, you may remember before Jesus is born, it describes the birth of John the Baptist. Zechariah is John the Baptist's father. Zechariah is a priest, and he is going through his regular priestly duties when he has the vision that he will have a son that will be the forerunner of the Messiah. It's easy when we read through that passage at Christmas time to miss what he is doing. But Luke clearly describes how he as a priest would go into the temple and burn incense. And Luke says that all of the people who were longing for the Messiah were outside the temple praying as Zechariah burned incense before the Lord. The incense is a physical fragrant sort of prayer that comes before God and says, we are thankful for our redemption and we long for more of you. In the book of Revelation, three times in God's heavenly temple, the prayers of the saints are described as bowls full of incense offered before the throne of God. And as those bowls of incense are poured out, God responds in power. Let me parenthetically say this. Have you ever had a prayer that you felt like wasn't answered? 
I think that's probably true of all of us. Revelation shows some of those prayers are being stored up and saved, and at just the right time, God is going to answer all of them in his perfect way. None of your prayers are ever unanswered, but some of them will take a while before they are answered. In short, what this small altar for incense was doing is continually offering the prayers of the people before God. And the sacrifices that were offered outside the tabernacle made it possible for a priest to enter the tabernacle and to offer up symbolic prayers on behalf of the people. And I believe that the image of a sweet and a spicy smell should tell us something about the pleasure that God takes in the prayers of his people. I imagine it's something like walking into a house where brownies are baking. Or, if you're like me, one of my favorite smells is when you open a guitar case and you smell the wood of, a, of an instrument and think of all the music that comes along with it. There's nothing quite like it. It might be a mixture of glue and wood. I'm not sure. It's a good smell. And God takes pleasure in the prayers of his people in the same way that you or I would enjoy a good and a fragrant smell. He loves hearing his people pray. Like any good relationship, and don't miss, the exodus happens so that his people can have a relationship with him. Like any good relationship, you have to talk to each other. Now in Israel, that talking was still very limited Unless you were a Levite selected for ministry in the tabernacle, you could not walk into the tabernacle and burn incense. God is very clear. You're not to just approach this casually. So you can imagine the the Israelites who would have prayed using Psalm 141, they're recognizing they don't have a position of privilege. When he says, let my prayers be counted as incense, that's because he has no right to go and burn incense before God. He is pleading on the mercy of God to hear his prayers when he knows that their access to the Father is limited. When I say that Exodus shows us the foundation for worship, that's because we have something greater and better. The access that we have to God is more intimate because of the blood of Jesus. Hebrews says we can boldly approach the throne of grace. We can pray prayers of confession and experience the forgiveness of God because our sacrifice has already been made. 1 John 1.9 says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. That's what we do in prayer. We can offer prayers of thanksgiving and know that God hears them. We can offer prayers of adoration, sometimes in song, but I think often it should just be in words, simple thank yous, as we enjoy things like spring, that we have a good God. We can just tell God how awesome he is in prayers of adoration, and we can ask him for anything. In fact, the Apostle John wrote, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. With that kind of promise in the word of God, let me ask you, how often do you pray? 
knowing that the God of the universe loves you and listens to you because of the precious blood of Christ, how much do you talk to him? Do you understand that Jesus' death and resurrection gives you the privilege of boldly asking him for help? And if you don't know how to pray, let me ask you, when will you learn? Will you begin today? Tim Keller describes recognizing that God is always with us. And he says, when you walk into a room and there's another person in that room, it would be incredibly rude to not acknowledge them, to just pretend that they don't exist. And yet God is always with us. And so why wouldn't we continue to talk to him knowing the privilege we have that the blood of Jesus gives us incredible access. Prayer is worship. If you do not pray, whatever else you do when you come to church, you are not fully worshiping God because you are neglecting part of what God has called you to do. And so the first thing that we've talked about this morning is prayer. The next section talks about giving for the maintaining of the tabernacle. And I only want to look at two verses. I actually preached on this when we looked at the free will offering a little bit earlier. So notice with me just verses 11 and verses 16 that describe what this is and what they were to do with the offering. Then the Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord, when you number them, that there be no plague. And now drop down to verse 16. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord, so as to make atonement for your lives. Now I've already preached a little bit about giving, and I talked from this passage about how there, there are times that it's appropriate to ask for a set amount so that sometimes giving is totally free and sometimes giving is regular. I've already preached about that, so I'm not going to say much except this. This particular gift was a recognition that God had saved each of the lives of the Israelites when he rescued them from Egypt. And the money was used to maintain the tabernacle, the place where God dwelled, where sacrifices and prayers were offered. So in this giving, they were recognizing, number one, that they belonged to God, and they were continuing their relationship with Him by maintaining the tabernacle in a very practical way. This morning for our scripture reading, we read from the book of Philippians, and I think the Philippian church is perhaps the greatest example of sacrificial giving for believers. Paul even uses the language of temple worship. I don't know if you noticed towards the end of the passage, he says that their gift was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And their giving was motivated by their salvation. Paul says they gave themselves first to God and then they gave practically to ministries. That's what's happening here. The New Testament is also remarkably clear that each of our lives belongs to God just as the lives of every Israelite belong to God because he was their redeemer. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And it is good to mention that we give money to God to recognize how he saved us 
And that is still part of our worship. But I believe the even greater point from this passage in Exodus is that we belong completely to God, and so our entire lives are to be given to Him. We set aside time for worship, and that's critical, but we do that so that every aspect of our lives continues to be worship, so that we are faithful when we are not gathered. So let me ask you this this morning. Are you recognizing that your life belongs to God? We were not redeemed by an act of judgment on some secular nation like Israel was. We were redeemed by God pouring out his judgment on Jesus Christ instead of us. And out of that great act of sacrificial love, we enjoy freedom and we are welcomed into fellowship with the Father. So let me ask you, do you show him thanks by giving your life to him in response? Do you give to him to show thanks for what he's done for you? And if not, then let me ask, do you, do you realize what he's done for you? Has your heart been gripped by the fact that God the Son died to secure your redemption? And if you know that God has saved you and your heart is gripped by his love for you, the only thing that makes sense is to give everything you have in thankfulness to Him. So giving is worship. And if you don't have a heart to give your life and all of your goods to the Lord, then you are missing part of what worship is. The next part of worship in the tabernacle has to do with washing. So notice verses 17 to 21 with me. The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze, for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister to a burnt offering, to, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and his offspring throughout their generations. Now the Bible is clear. Water itself will not make you clean before God. This is a picture of cleansing yourself from sin, and it is a visible sign of repentance. Just as this is a symbol or a picture of cleanliness, it is a reminder that God's holiness will not allow sin to come into his presence. For Aaron and the priests who served in God's presence, this was an issue of life and death. Now, the New Testament shows washing in two ways that I believe are very applicable to us. Sometimes, baptism is referred to as a type of washing. Baptism shows that through faith in Christ, our sins are washed away and we are made clean. 1 Peter 3.21 says, Clearly, the water doesn't do anything to remove your sins, but it is an active sort of prayer of repentance as you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus for new life. But washing with water is also a symbol of purifying saved sinners. Jesus first showed this, you may remember, when he washed the disciples' feet. He said, The one who bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. In other words, you might be saved, but you still sin. You don't need 
to be completely washed, but you need to continue to deal with that sin. And so the question is, how does someone who already knows the Lord, who has followed the Lord obediently in baptism, how do you wash? How do you maintain your purity before the Lord? Well, I believe Ephesians teaches very clearly the way we deal with sin is by receiving the word of God. Ephesians in chapter 5 says Jesus is actively washing the church in the water of the word so that his church will be a pure bride when he returns. So when we trust the gospel, we are made completely clean, and that's symbolized in baptism. But we will not be perfect until we see Jesus face to face. And until then, we need the constant application of the word to stay faithful and to grow in purity. So there are two questions that I think everyone here should ask. Let me ask you, have you been washed in repentance? Have you been baptized Are you trusting that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead? In Acts chapter 22, verse 16, when Paul describes his salvation, he says, Ananias, the man who invited him to trust Christ, used these words, which I think honestly are somewhat uncomfortable for us because of how closely he ties baptism with salvation. He says, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. The New Testament is very clear that baptism does not save you, but it is a public profession of your faith. Romans 10, 9, and 10 makes it clear it's calling on the name of the Lord that saves you. And yet, you should demonstrate your faith by following the Lord obediently in baptism. So let me ask, if you have come to know the Lord, or perhaps you don't know the Lord, have you followed him in obedience being baptized? It is a visible sign of what faith does for you, washing away your sins. Through Jesus, your sins are washed away. Are you trusting in that right now? And if you are... How do you feel about the Word of God? If you have been washed completely, are you faithfully seeking to be washed by the water of the Word so that you grow? The way this works is the Word of God will reveal areas in your life where you are still in sin. And God in His mercy will lovingly show you that and give you an opportunity to repent and to respond in faith so that When you see the Lord, you will be more and more like Him. Let me ask you, do you love the Word of God? Do you read it or listen to it daily? Do you talk about it with other people? And are you continuing to wash in the water of the Word? You cannot say that you worship God unless you are being washed by the Word. It makes no sense to say that you know anything about God unless you have first listened to what He says in the Word. So trusting God's Word is worship. Finally, notice this morning the oil for anointing. Notice with me verses 26 and verse 30 of Exodus chapter 30. God describes the type of oil that they are to make, but he says, verse 26, what they are to do with it. With it, you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony. And then drop down to verse 38. Or excuse me, not verse 38. Look with me at verse 30. He says, you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them. 
that they may serve me as priests. Both the place and the priests in Old Testament worship were anointed with oil for service. And this oil is a symbolic way of saying that God's Spirit rested on them both in the place and in the priests. Now today, we don't have a place that we anoint, but we are still anointed by the Holy Spirit. You can see this very clearly in the book of 1 John. John says this, You have been anointed by the Holy One, speaking to every believer, not just some some people who are called to particular ministry, but every single Christian. You have been anointed by the Holy One, and the anointing that you receive abides in you, or it lives in you, and that anointing, that Holy Spirit, testifies to you who Jesus is and applies the Word of God to your life. And today, the Holy Spirit is very often misunderstood, and I cannot in this message say a lot about it because I want to emphasize every aspect of ancient worship. But John clearly describes the Holy Spirit having a ministry that shows us who Jesus is, that teaches us to trust Him, to love Him, and to obey Him. And John continues, we know that Jesus abides in us by the Spirit that God has given us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. You will not have saving faith unless the Spirit has been poured out in your heart. And yet, for believers, we are also told to walk in the Spirit, to remain consistent with what the Spirit has done in our lives. So let me ask you this. Are you seeking God's active presence in your life? Are you acting as someone who has been set apart for a particular type of ministry in the household of God? Are you open to God speaking to you through His Word? So a moment ago, I was talking about the Word of God. It's very important that we listen to it in such a way that it speaks to our lives personally. And that only happens through the Holy Spirit working in us so that we understand that the Word of God applies directly to us. Are you seeking the Holy Spirit's presence and power in your life? In other words, you should act like God's priest, because you are a priest. The book of Ephesians commands us to be filled with the Spirit. And not to beat a dead horse, but this comes as a result of believing the Word of God. If you are to be filled with the Spirit, you need to listen to the Word of God and respond to it in faith. Paul asks the church in Galatians, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or by hearing through faith? And the answer is, of course, you receive the Spirit by hearing through faith. The Spirit is a gift of grace that God gives when we trust His Word. So let me ask, do you want the Holy Spirit to be active in your life? Then you need to trust the Word of God. Jesus said very clearly, the Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. The Spirit teaches us to love God. The Spirit teaches us to serve God. And the Spirit is our comforter. The Spirit helps us pray. The Spirit prays for us when we don't know how to pray. Let me encourage you. It is possible, I think, to read the Word of God in a sort of dead and lifeless way. The only way to encounter God through His Word is through the Holy Spirit. And I want to encourage you 
to seek him. We cannot worship without him. I believe it's very possible to come to church and to have an experience that is entirely non-Christian, that does not include God. But the only way for us to fellowship with God right now is through his spirit. And so I would ask that you would continue to pray that God's spirit would be upon us, that we would seek him personally in our prayer lives, that we would seek him as an entire church, that we would ask him to move through his word, through preaching, and through our times of worship. So in conclusion, you should pray if you want to worship. You should give if you want to worship. You should bathe in the word, and you should be filled with the spirit. And if you are missing any of those things, then you are not experiencing what God intends for all of us to have in worship. Biblical worship prays, it gives, it's washed in the purifying word of God, and it is anointed with the Holy Spirit. So let me ask, when you think of worship, is it biblical worship? Let's pray. Father in heaven, We want to know you and trust what you have done for us in Christ. And I pray that you would help us to walk in obedience. I pray that you would help us to receive your word in faith. And Lord, I ask that your spirit would fill us so that we enjoy all of the fruits of the spirit. May your word come alive in our hearts. May we be ready to see Jesus face to face because of your work in us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.